All right, I'm very excited to have back with us Dr. Ty McKinney. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be back here. Um, the last podcast was a lot of fun, so I'm excited for this one. I'm very excited to be talking to you about your company, 8-Bit Cortex. Uh, so tell me, how did the idea come about and when was it started? Yeah, so I guess if I were to like tell the story all the way back from the beginning, um, I was doing uh, graduate school at the University of Utah. I was in a clinical neuropsychology program. And we would do um, assessments with uh, brain injury patients. And then later on, with uh, I was also doing assessments for uh, people with um, ADHD and uh, learning disability uh, differential diagnosis. And whenever we would do the cognitive testing component, we'd usually have to give some sort of disclaimer like, hey, the next two hours are really going to suck. We're going to ask you to do a bunch of tedious things that you're going to find frustrating. Um, but by the end of it, we're going to have really rich data that we can use to uh, uh, give you um, insight into your condition make some recommendations, and this can uh, lead to referrals to get you uh, resources to better help things. And then they'd be like, okay, and then they would feel stupid for the next two hours as we got them to do the cognitive testing. Um, so that really got me thinking, there's got to be a better way to collect some of this, um, this information. Um, in addition to the fact that the data we collect in these clinical settings does not generalize over to people's uh, day-to-day life. Um, so uh, I really became interested after that looking into a smartphone technology. Since everyone has a smartphone, it's, it's fairly ubiquitous. And there's lots of ways in which you could use those kinds of devices to gather uh, clinically relevant data. Uh, so I started looking into a research technique called ecological momentary assessment, uh, which is basically your phone pings you um, once a day, a few times a day, what have you, whatever the schedule is. And it gets you to ask, answer questions about your current momentary experience. And the idea is that it removes a lot of retrospective bias. Um, and then uh, you get a time series of these data points. Um, from there, you can use more sophisticated time series analysis in order to get a better understanding of how someone's doing in their day-to-day life. Uh, so about halfway through grad school, I really got excited about this idea and wanted to uh, learn much more about the stats that could be used towards this approach. But I, again, encountered this issue. People don't want to do this of their own accord. So then I tried to think, well, what are ways that you could actually incentivize people to do this um, without paying them? Um, and the answer was gamification. Well, let's try to make this fun. Let's make it so that instead of, hey, the next two hours is going to suck, hey, the next five minutes is going to be relatively enjoyable. Great. Yeah. Could you expand on what retrospective bias is? Uh, yes. So right now, the gold standard for um, a mental health diagnosis is um, an interview. Um, which if I'm talking to a group of neuroscientists, I don't need to go through all the bias that could potentially go into that uh, from a subjective angle. And questionnaires are kind of the next runner up as far as like gold standards for doing these diagnoses, which also have a lot of bias. Uh, So um, based on a a personal experience and that of a a friend during undergrad, I really had um, a passion for wanting to find a way that we use technology to remove some of that bias. Um, Original is actually really interested in uh, EEG and uh, thought that uh, BCI could be really fruitful. Um, but when I started grad school, the technology just wasn't quite there yet. Um, and then that's when I switched over to looking into uh, smartphones, as I mentioned. Okay. Yeah. So you have these biased and somewhat inaccurate mental health assessments that are happening for people all over the world, presumably. Yeah. And you want to find a better way to analyze how people are actually doing in their day-to-day lives. 100%. Yeah, so that's where the idea um, originally started to come from. And then the pandemic happened. Um, And this interrupted my research schedule. We don't have to get into the details of all that. 
But the important thing is that it gave me the space to start thinking about how could this idea work within more of a real-world context. Um, I had recently met up with a, a team of uh, uh, student entrepreneurs and other uh, student neuroscientists that were really excited about making some sort of technology that could help mental health um, as a consequence of the pandemic. Uh, so uh, th- that's what we set towards doing, and I was dedicating a lot of my time while I was finishing up my PhD towards that. And then um, eventually what we settled on is that they're, rather than focusing on clinical diagnoses, because that's a very difficult industry to breach into, physicians and other healthcare providers typically don't like updating their practice. Um, they like to use the methods that are tried and true and what they've uh, used for the last like, um, uh, several decades. So um, we realized that working in the uh, corporate wellness space would let us get to market much more quickly and potentially be much more impactful. Um, companies actually tend to be much more willing to try out new ideas. They're um, uh, much uh, more open-minded and innovative as far as that goes. And then we realized that a lot of the, um, the burnout risk that people incur comes from their job in many cases. And initially thought that there was not enough resources to deal with this problem. But it turns out actually there's lots of resources. People just don't use them. And we realized that um, gamification is a way to engage people in this process, as I was previously talking about. So, they, so then our uh, products are to, started to emerge where we could use this gamified um, testing process that we had developed. And if we made recommendations for resources, people might be more likely to use them. So again, uh, doing a better job of utilizing the resources that are already there within the workplace. And that gets us towards our uh, current iteration of the technology where we're looking to be uh, collaborating with um, uh, benefits providers and HR professionals, where we do a gamified engagement surveys. That's the term, the industry term that's used. Uh, I learned the hard way no one wants to purchase a risk assessment that they was not already on their budgets. And uh, based on this, we can collect data about not only the typical operations that HR is looking for, but also aspects of culture and health and wellness. Um, and that all this information can be very useful for developing a corporate wellness strategy that actually works and is based on data, whereas the vast majority are not and have modest outcomes at best. And then uh, we're going to be doing a series of pilots over the next year where we're going to have uh, companies do this risk assessment process and also collect their um, benefits data historically. And we want to train a machine learning model to use the benefits data to forecast burnout risk. And this has a lot of uh, benefits and support that can go towards um, the um, updating insurance quotes based on mental health um, uh, risk, which right now is very complicated, difficult to assess. Uh, As we start off the conversation, these questionnaires don't really do a good job. And even if they did, people in HR aren't trained how to use them. Right. So you're approaching companies and saying, hey, I have this tool. It's kind of fun to do, which is an added benefit. So the employees will just have to, a couple times a day, fill out or engage in your process. Mm -hmm. And then based on that, you're able to create a model that predicts when employees are burning out, which employees will burn out. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You're getting the gist of it. Um, So again, going back to that engagement um, uh, component, we realized that events are actually a really good way to get buy-in from people. So we usually start off every engagement with a, a company with some sort of an educational workshop. Uh, where, again, uh, we teach them about mental health and wellness, uh, burnout risk, uh, the neuroscience that goes into that. And then usually there's some other additional topic that gets uh, pulled in. Uh, personality data has been the one that has the, the most um, uh, interest. Uh, so talk about how um, there's uh, different kinds of burnout risk depending on your personality profile. 
and how you can use that to uh, have a strategy that works for you as an individual and how you can lean on your team uh, to be more effective uh, together. Uh, so really treating diversity as a source of strength rather than a potential source of weakness. Mm-hmm. It sounds excellent. Yeah. Um, and then as you pointed out, then, yeah, we collect this data, get them to do the one week of follow-up where it's like the, the daily component, and then we compile all that data into a report that, as you said, um, gives uh, overall burnout risk, whether or not certain groups within the organization are higher risk than others, as well as a list of recommendations for what potentially could mitigate that risk moving forward. And then if they want help implementing that strategy, we can do that as well. Okay. So the, the company will be benefiting because they'll get less burnout, so more productive employees. Yeah. And then you also mentioned it affects their insurance. Yeah. So uh, this is actually a really good point to talk about the ROI of mental health. Um, turns out mental health is really expensive for employers. Um, I think the latest um, estimate is about $15,000 per employee per year on average. Wow. Yeah. And what goes into that is, um, as you were uh, saying, there's um, absenteeism, which is like sick days, but for mental health. Uh, Presenteeism, where you show up to work, but you're not at 100%, so you have reduced productivity. Uh, That costs the employers. Uh, There's short and long-term disability, um, which, again, for due to mental health reasons like a stress leave. And then if people, if the burnout risks still aren't addressed, then people don't come back from their disability, they just leave. So then you have turnover to deal with. And some data from KPMG um, found that um, in professional um, uh, uh, careers, there's about a 10% voluntary turnover rate uh, due to burnout. So these are people that aren't being fired. They're saying, I can't deal with this job anymore. I want to find one that has a better work-life balance. Um, So for all these reasons, this costs the company money plus some increased insurance premiums over the long term. Uh, Since this is an audience of neuroscientists, you can probably appreciate that if you have um, mental health comorbidities with physical health conditions, that you tend uh, people with mental health tend not to do as good on the physical health. So over a 10-year time span, this results in higher insurance premiums as your diabetes is not managed as effectively. Right. Yeah, it seems like your tool is great for catching things and nipping them in the bud before they become a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. Let's get into your process. So how did you go about building this company? What were the major obstacles and how did you overcome those? So I first tried to do this all by myself and it was a a failure. Um, So really the process came around having a team that uh, could supplement the areas where I wasn't so good at. Um, So as I mentioned, I was working with um, other um, uh, entrepreneurial students, uh, so business students. So they really helped out on the business development side. Um, I was working with um, a really talented um, uh, software developer that is uh, currently um, a grad student here at the UFC. Um, So he was really instrumental for um, helping take my uh, scientific ideas and actually make um, a digital product around them. Um, And then from there, I was just trying to pull in as many different types of community resources as potentially we could. Uh, so we uh, had a lot of uh, early success with grant funding. Um, so that's one way that I think uh, is underappreciated for how academics actually have um, a, a step up when it comes to startups, as uh, we tend to be really good at writing grants. Um, it's a major component of our career success, and we're used to the failure rate. So when we get rejected, it's not a big deal for us. Very true. <laughs> um, so yeah, really pulling together all those resources and then... Uh, really trying to do a better job of articulating exactly what the problem is and getting buy-in for the potential solution. Um, So again, as I was uh, talking about, um, initially wanted to use this towards a clinical diagnosis, but we realized that's not a problem that the healthcare professionals that are established really wanted solved. 
they like their current methods until it's proven otherwise. Um, so we found that there was this problem in the workplace wellness space that we could address. Um, so then the question was, well, does the gamification do a good enough job of addressing it? Um, and that's still an ongoing process. Um, one thing that I've learned over two and a half years of doing this is that um, things take a lot longer than you think. And um, right now we're about industry average as far as our engagement KPIs, which is not good. Um, the overall, mental health apps struggle as far as engagement. Um, something like 90% of people stop using um, uh, mental health apps within a week or so. So really, we're trying to uh, go above and beyond that, just really calibrating our expectations in order to uh, get the most bang for buck, which is why we only do our engagements for about a week at a time, is because the data suggests that's about how long people are going to use it for anyway. So we're not going to try to go for the second week uh, just yet. Right. So how do you change things to be more interesting and increase engagement? Do you have future plans to go beyond the one week? Uh, yeah. So... Uh, that's kind of um, uh, really getting at our gamification strategy, and there's a few different components there. Uh, So one component I would say is humor, Um, just finding ways to present this information in a way that isn't super dry and boring. Um, I have a fairly strong background in science communication, so for me, um, and I've done uh, some some clinical training in this area, so communicating mental health information is uh, one of my personal strong suits. I was able to really pull that in as one aspect. Um, Another one is like, the actual mini game itself. Uh, so we have a game that uses reaction time to estimate attention, uh, which in turn um, is a component of our burnout risk. Uh, so uh, that's relatively fun. We've seen uh, we've seen people when they play it on teams, like they get into little competitions of who can get the highest score and stuff like that. You want to have a bit of a sense of progression. So now we have a way for people to um, unlock additional questionnaires and features and those sorts of things. And that way, um, after the one week, if people are still interested, there's more that they can do. And that over the course of the one, one week, they feel like they're, they're learning and getting more out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned science communication as being a big part of being able to get companies to understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you develop those skills? Uh, so I originally developed those uh, skills actually working with a, a branch out, um, uh, going back to the previous podcast. So it was about a few years into working with Branchup, we realized that the students that we're having present to our uh, general community stakeholders, no one understood what they were talking about. Um, I was guilty of this the first time I did my own like stakeholder presentation. Um, the, the founder's husband listened to me for about an hour and a half talking about hippocampal neurophysiology. And like, admitted later on, he didn't understand a word that I said. And I was blissfully ignorant to that. <laughs> um, so addressing that was uh, one thing that I had a bit of a, a leg up on, uh, which really comes down to understanding your audience, figuring out what do they know, what do they care about. And then once you have a sense of that, then angling your communication appropriately is much easier. Um, and for most scientists, it really just comes down to removing detail. Uh, we like to get caught up in the weeds of what kind of recording equipment we're using, what our p-values were, those sorts of things. Just stop. Most people don't care about that. Um, think what's the bigger picture take-home message. Um, so, uh, And I found that that was a really critical skill as an entrepreneur because you're constantly trying to explain your business idea to potential customers, potential stakeholders, um, investors, other entrepreneurs. So being able to communicate those ideas very uh, clearly was it was a huge, valuable skill. All right. I will work on that myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything else important that you don't think we've touched on yet? 
Yes. So I think that the one thing that I would really want to leave uh, this audience with is that you're much more prepared for a career in tech than you realize. Basically, every innovative company these days um, has um, data as a component of their operations, meaning that scientists have a natural role that they can plug into because we like data and we like to make uh, data do cool things for us. And really, then it's just a matter of how's the data collected and what kind of algorithms are you applying with the data, what kind of hardware interfaces with it, and that's where the, the, um, the excitement happens. But in a very general sense, uh, scientists um, have a lot of value they can bring, as I mentioned, towards the grant writing side of things, towards the science communication side of things, towards doing um, uh, research and development with companies. Uh, project management is another thing that I think grad students are quite capable of. Um, coding. Um, I think most scientists kind of have to code these days. And that's a very generalizable skill. It doesn't matter what language you learn. It gives you the foundation to learn any other language. And even if you don't end up uh, coding within um, uh, an industry project, knowing how to code helps you interface with software developers much more effectively. Um, you can call them out when you think that they're being unrealistic, or you can offer support when it, you, it seems like they're hitting a wall. So those are all very transferable skills from grad school towards um, uh, the tech sector that I really think are underappreciated. Um, and I wish that there was a better job of helping students realize that those career opportunities are available out there. Yeah, well, I think it's good to hear that from somebody like yourself, who's gone through this process and is successfully using those skills in a company right now. Uh, because it's very difficult when you're in the lab, you're working on your very niche project, which might be applicable to something small or maybe something wider. But it's good to know that the skills are being developed in the background at the same time. No, 100%. Like, I mean, by the time um, uh, people graduate their PhD and defend, they've got a lot of the requisite skills to, to, to work in industry. It's just a matter of learning what is the language and the terminology, the, the jargon, so to speak, to communicate the value of those skills to potential employers. Uh, so I think there's still probably a bit of work to be done there, but you're more qualified than you think. So... What would you say to somebody who is in grad school right now and they have an idea, they're trying to develop it? Uh, I would say find uh, uh, groups of people that want to help you develop this idea in some capacity. Um, so given that uh, this audience is largely academic and neuroscientists, this means think about what are the skills that you don't have and try to seek those out. So the um, University of Calgary has the Hunter Hub, which has a lot of um, entrepreneurship programs and training opportunities. So interfacing with that, um, I met a lot of my team through uh, hackathon competitions. Uh, there's lots of different grant funding available. Um, actually get out into the community and start meeting people. Does this problem that, or this idea that you have, does it solve a problem that actually exists in the world? Because sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you have a problem, but it, it's kind of just you. And then once you start talking with people, you realize that. Or it's a problem that people just um, uh, aren't willing to pay to solve. Uh, for example, with my own company, um, we had a few conversations with uh, restaurants, and we realized that burnout is actually just part of their, uh, their practice. Um, they anticipate that they're going to have a quarter of their staff come and leave every year, and that's just normal. And they didn't really have a desire to do a better job of retaining their staff. So uh, again, that's an example of really trying to figure out, you know, are people willing to, to pay for this, the, your solution to the problem? And then once you start getting a sense of those answers and you've got a team building around, um, then there's a really good ecosystem here in Calgary to help support you. Uh, so connect with people, Platform Calgary, 
Um, Innovate Calgary has a lot of uh, good resources as well. Uh, the Rainforest Group. Uh, lots of different ways to take your idea to the next level. Um, but it all starts with uh, finding other people that want to go on the journey with you. Yeah. I imagine it's tempting to try to just do it all by yourself at once. But I guess having a team makes it more realistic. No, 100%. It's like, one, it is physically impossible to do all the work that you need to advance a business entirely on your own. So, and having those different degrees of expertise really comes in. Uh, so, for example, when I started Apic Cortex, I did not have any business sense. Sales is not something that was taught to me in grad school. Shocker. So I've had to learn that along the way. But having other people on the team that uh, did have those experiences and expertise really helped out uh, substantially. Mm-hmm. And how was it for you to come to terms with it's okay not to do everything and have to do everything and be an expert in all different areas? Oh, that was a big challenge for me. Like, I got into academia because I like learning and I like trying to figure stuff out. And I had a tendency to always work in smaller labs where if there was a problem, it was kind of I had to solve it. Uh, so working in a team-based setting was uh, where I was really leaning on my, my teammates, not just as um, uh, a source of labor, but really as a source of expertise. That was a, a shift that I had to really uh, embrace. Uh, but I'm glad I did so because now it's made me much more effective as a leader. Um, and as a, a collaborator for all sorts of initiatives, both within my startup and more broadly. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear that you were able to navigate your way through that. Mm-hmm. So what's the hardest part about keeping a business running long term? The key is long term. Uh, most startups are usually like three months away from running out of money. Um, so I would say like the way to tackle that is what I was saying earlier. It's really uh, focus on the, um, the uh, business validation component. Before you start your business and you get everything up and running, do as much work as you can to get the customers pre-lined up as possible. Because uh, getting revenue in the door is challenging by itself, uh, let alone if you don't have good foundations for a business, it can be nearly impossible. So either making sure you have a constant stream of grants that you can be applying to and that that's coming in, or that you, uh, better yet, have actual customers willing to pay for your solution. So that's definitely the, the hardest part of, about a business is making sure that those foundations are in place, that your business actually works. You may have heard the term zombie companies before. Um, this is um, a phenomenon that happened uh, before the pandemic where uh, money or capital was very easy to acquire. So there's lots of uh, startups that got funding support to execute their idea, but the business fundamentals weren't there. And basically, without the venture capital, they can't sustain themselves. So you don't want to be in that position because uh, those companies are going to go under just a matter of when will they run out of money because they're not able to bring in any new money um, in, in an organic sense. Okay. So strong foundations yeah. and having good connections and established business with people really helps? No, 100%. Yeah, um, to as much as possible, if you have a network of people that you could potentially sell to, uh, that goes a really long way. And if I could redo everything for my startup, I would actually wait to incorporate and wait to take things off until I did a better job of having that network lined up, because uh, it helps out substantially. Very interesting. I would not have thought of that myself. And then in terms of you personally... How do you balance work and life? Because you have a lot going on. <laughs> I have to be honest with like I've struggled with burnout myself. Um, it's very cyclical. 
So really, I've just tried to come to terms with how can I manage the cycle more effectively. Um, so making sure that you do a lot of self-care is, is really important. Um, so giving yourself time and space to pause and not feel guilty about it is really important. So I think that's one thing that a lot of uh, grad students can probably resonate with because there also is a lot of hustle, like always be writing, always be writing. But then at the same time, you also have to make sure that you have the right set of accountability so that way you're making the progress in the right directions. Because if you're just spinning your wheels, you're doing things, it's not, you know, taking, uh, going anywhere, that's really frustrating and that incurs the burnout risk as well. So yeah, making sure that you have that space for rest and then also really making sure that you uh, lean on your team and your community for support. Again, you can't do this all by yourself and having people that you can ask for help and that can step in to do this or that really makes a world of a difference. Whether it's, you know, having someone that at one point went to law school and can take a look through this contract, you know, so that you don't have to pay for a lawyer to look at it. Um, or uh, someone that um, is willing to show up with cupcakes for an event because that'll make everyone a little bit more happy. Just all those little things like that uh, really go a long way to helping me as a, a person manage my own burnout risk and knowing that, again, I don't have to do it alone. Because when I feel all that pressure to do it myself, that's when my ADHD really starts to kick off and I uh, become much more uh, unorganized. Uh, lack of detail orientation and things start to become a little more shaky yeah cupcakes definitely would make me want to go to an event more as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i feel much more prepared if i have an idea that strikes me and want to start a business so thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us Uh, very wise words from ty mckinney thank you very much it's been my pleasure this has been a wonderful conversation 